1: Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Please be advised that the descriptions in this podcast are graphic. This is Chapter 8 of Blood and Truth, a podcast of the Tampa Bay Times. Today, finality versus fairness. I'm Leonora LaPeter Anton. This story is about a man who has served 42 years on Florida's death row. He says he's innocent. For more than two decades, he's been asking the state to allow for complete DNA tests of the evidence in his case. Florida keeps saying no. As I said in episode one, no Florida death row inmate has begged the courts for DNA testing more than Tommy Ziegler. His lawyers have asked six times. Each time, prosecutors have fought it. Years ago, one of Ziegler's New York lawyers, David Mikeley, told me he was about to file the latest appeal for advanced DNA testing. I spoke with him on the phone. It was 2013. Here's what he said.
2: This is a different type of testing in a number of respects. The most important is probably that Today's testing technology is vastly more sensitive than what they had back then Not only is the testing more sensitive but it's sensitive enough that it can actually uh, pick up today a whole category of testing that previously was really not used in criminal cases and that category is called touch DNA and touch DNA is revolutionary it's it's basically, Uh, The same kind of analytical process you'd use for blood or any other type of DNA. Uh But the source of the DNA is skin cells that have sloughed off a person rather than blood or something else. And of course, if you're in a violent struggle with somebody and there's a lot of friction and pressure, then you're going to shed a greater number of skin cells.
1: Michaelis sounded excited. Finally, after all these years, scientists were telling him they could provide real answers. Ziegler's convoluted case was like a runaway train, with its rushed trial, drug juror, hidden police reports and witness statements, a mysterious Robert Foster, the man with a history of robbing businesses who police said was mistakenly identified in their initial reports, and what about the averted armed robbery of the Five and Dime across the street from the furniture store that same night?
2: And our plea to the court is, let's remove those doubts once and for all. Let's find out whether Tommy Ziegler is innocent or guilty.
3: The fact is, when you look at it as a whole, the evidence
4: is flimsy.
1: That's Dennis Tracy, Ziegler's other New York attorney of 20 years. He was speaking in March 2016 in a downtown Orlando courtroom. Ziegler's lawyers had gotten a hearing on the DNA request. Tracy's associate, Michael Lee, stood next to him. Ziegler chose not to be there. The wooden pews behind the lawyers filled with many of the people involved in the case over the years. Ken and Linda Roach, the couple who heard rapid-fire shots as they drove by Ziegler's store that Christmas Eve 1975, were hoping to testify. Lynn Marie Cardi, Ziegler's private investigator, perched next to his cousin, Connie Crawford. Charlie Mays's sons were there, as were Perry Edward Jr.'s wife Sandra and his daughters, down from Georgia. Jeff Ashton, then the state attorney, sat right behind prosecutors, and Terry Hadley, one of Ziegler's original trial attorneys, was on the other side of the aisle. On the witness stand, a Dutch scientist described recent advances in DNA testing and how he might use the science to figure out if Ziegler was the killer.
5: It's pretty sure that the perpetrator would have got blood of the father-in-law on his clothing. So if you don't find that, then uh, that's, it's weird if, if um, Tommy Ziegler did that and uh, did not get any blood of uh, his father-in-law on his clothing.
1: Richard Eichelenbohm said he had worked with DNA since 1993 at the Netherlands Forensic Institute, his country's national lab, the first touch DNA tests had been performed there in 1997. In 2008, Eichel and Bohm was the first to get the results of a touch DNA test into a U.S. courtroom. He later opened a lab with his wife in Conifer, Colorado. He has now testified in more than 90 cases. Eichel and Bohm had examined some of the evidence in Ziegler's case before the hearing. He explained he would test Ziegler's entire shirt and also the undershirt he'd been wearing fingernail clippings from the victims, the insides of the guns, and the bloodstains on both sides of the lapel on Eunice Ziegler's herringbone jacket. Here he is speaking at that hearing.
5: There's a lot of pictures of Mrs. Ziegler's shirt, and you can see um, quite some blood spatter on this shirt still. So after 40 years, yes, I'm, I'm pretty sure we will get DNA from the bloodstains.
1: Eichel and Bohm said he also would conduct what's known as a mini-STR test. That's designed for older evidence degraded by mold, humidity, or UV light. It targets fragments of DNA, which are less prone to deterioration. And a third test, known as YSTR, that filters out all the female DNA, allowing male DNA to stand alone. Ken Nunnally, the current prosecutor on Ziegler's case, challenged Eichel and Bohm's proficiency and accreditation. He grew outraged when he learned Eichel Baum had seen a documentary on the case to educate himself about it.
3: Your Honor, at this point, I'm going to object to this witness's testimony and move that it be stricken for lack of any credible factual basis.
1: The prosecutor raised the issue of contamination, saying that the authenticity of the DNA is questionable. He also offered an explanation for why an earlier limited DNA test had found no evidence of Perry Edwards' blood on Ziegler's shirt. Were you aware that Mr. Ziegler was wearing a raincoat and rubber gloves at some point in time during this process? Nunnally asked. Whispers rose in the audience as Ziegler's supporters traded puzzled looks. No one could remember anyone ever mentioning Ziegler in a raincoat. No, Eichel and Bohm replied. One of Ziegler's employees kept a raincoat in the store, and he told police that it was missing after the crime, but no evidence had ever been presented to suggest Ziegler had worn it, and no coat was ever found. Here at the hearing, though, Nunnally's question came across as damning evidence against Ziegler. David Baer, a retired senior analyst for the Florida Department of Law Enforcement Crime Lab in Orlando, was expected to be a witness for the prosecution at that 2016 hearing, but the state never called him. It soon became clear why. Ziegler's lawyers asked him to testify. Bayer said the more modern testing could help answer questions, and he found the defense's DNA testing request reasonable. But once again, it would be up to a judge to decide. On July 29, 2016, three months after the hearing, Circuit Judge Reginald K. Whitehead issued his ruling. Whitehead had worked as an Orange County prosecutor from 1986 to 1989 under State Attorney Robert Egan before becoming a judge in 1994. Egan, you might remember, was the man who initially prosecuted Ziegler. Ziegler wondered about whether that connection influenced the judge. Whitehead had been on the case for two decades and had ruled against Ziegler's previous requests for DNA testing. He declined to be interviewed for this podcast. Whitehead's ruling was 28 pages long. He said that Ziegler's request was too late. He should have asked to test the whole shirt back when he was granted permission to conduct DNA testing in 2001. But Whitehead also said the tests wouldn't prove Ziegler innocent, And that's the standard set by Florida's DNA statute. There must be, in legal terms, a reasonable probability of innocence. The logic is maddening to Ziegler's supporters. They argue that if someone else's DNA were mixed with the victim's blood, Ziegler must have been telling the truth all these years. In a phone interview recently, Eichelin Bohm told me that today's DNA tests can tell us a lot more about what happened at that crime scene 43 years ago.
5: Yeah, you can, you can draw this out. How did this all happen? How did one person kill these four persons?
1: Ziegler's attorneys appealed Judge Whitehead's decision to the Florida Supreme Court. It issued a three-page ruling in April 2017. The court said using new techniques to get the same result is unnecessary and unwarranted. I
5: think they use, uh, in a lot of cases, they use technicalities more. I would say, from my point of view, I'd say truth a true finding. If he did it, well, that's what we will find. Then I will find blood of, of, of sticking the back on him. So from a scientific point of view, I would say, well, do the investigation. But yeah, I, of course, there are all kinds of laws and, 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 and rules and 5C hearings, and the defense has to come up with a certain uh, amount of proof. More cases are refused than reopened.
1: When I read the rulings in this case, I understood the judges were following the law as they interpreted it, but it made me wonder, was this happening in other cases, and did Ziegler's case help explain why so many now exonerated men had struggled for years to get anyone to listen? So I looked through more than 500 death row cases since 1976, when the death penalty was reinstated. Each case was entered on a spreadsheet— I was searching for anyone who had asked for DNA testing, who had been denied, who had been granted, and why. As I researched each inmate, I found Florida had a history of mishandling death row cases. For every Ted Bundy and Eileen Warnos, there were others whose cases were riddled with inattentive lawyers, tainted trials, racial bias, and prosecutorial misconduct. I discovered that Florida had actually deprived a total of 19 men from accessing modern science. Eight of the men were executed without ever being allowed to obtain DNA tests. Another nine, including Ziegler, were allowed DNA tests when the technology was in early development. They were later prevented from conducting more advanced analysis. Their appeals for post-conviction tests have been rejected 74 times, or three out of every four times, according to my review, which was confirmed by two data specialists. Seth Miller, executive director of the Innocence Project of Florida, explained the need for modern DNA analysis.
6: Science is not static, it evolves. And so 10 years later, it may be the case that the science has sufficiently evolved for them to be able to get that result that could be dispositive in their case. But courts are looking at it through a normal post-conviction procedure lens where you know they think you get one shot at this, and if, you don't, if we don't grant it, then that's, it's foreclosed for all time, and um, that, that's not the way the law works, or it's not the way it was designed to work.
1: Nine of the men who can't get DNA testing were convicted partially with microscopic hair comparison. That method was employed by the FBI for decades, and agents trained detectives around the country. Henry Cerici, now 70 years old, has, like Ziegler, spent 42 years on Florida's death row. He was sentenced to death for killing a used car lot owner on December 3, 1975, in Orange County, about three weeks before the murders at the Ziegler Furniture Store. One of the most damning pieces of evidence against Sirichi came from a crime lab analyst. The analyst had compared a hair found on the victim's sock with a hair from Sirichi and told Sirichi's jury it was a match in all probability. But in 2013, the FBI and the American Society of Crime Laboratory Directors acknowledged that previous hair comparison analysis was invalid, that it could not identify one person to the exclusion of others. The courts concluded there was enough other evidence against Sorici, so he was not allowed to conduct a DNA test of the hair. Sorici had confessed to the crime multiple times, though his lawyers say he has brain damage and is, quote, functionally retarded, end quote. In 2016, the U.S. Supreme Court refused to hear an appeal of his case. Justice Stephen Breyer dissented, arguing that keeping men on death row for decades essentially amounted to cruel and unusual punishment. Breyer said some of those executed are not the worst of the worst, but rather are individuals chosen at random on the basis perhaps of geography, perhaps of the views of the individual prosecutors, or still worse, on the basis of race. So the courts won't allow Ziegler to conduct DNA testing, period. And almost 70% of the condemned men who can't get DNA testing were convicted in the 1970s or 80s when that testing didn't exist or was at its origins. Many of the cases are, like Ziegler's, based on circumstantial evidence and lack eyewitness testimony of the crimes.
7: It's like not watching the end of a movie. What happened?
1: That's former state Senator Ellen Bogdanoff, a Republican from Fort Lauderdale. More than a decade ago, she co-sponsored a bill to help longer-serving death row inmates obtain DNA testing beyond a two-year time limit. Bogdanoff was surprised at our findings. She thought the DNA laws that she and former Republican Senator Alex Villalobos sponsored would help people get DNA testing, not hinder their attempts. I got the same reaction from Villalobos when I spoke to him on the phone. The whole point of the law, he said, was to remove doubts where possible. Courts in most states, including Florida, are willing to allow DNA analysis that proves innocence, such as a test of a rape kit where the perpetrator can be positively identified. But Florida's law allows judges to reject requests that will not clearly exonerate only raised doubts, and judges must distinguish between those running the clock on their death sentences and those with legitimate evidence. Bogdanoff thinks a legislative remedy may be the answer.
7: This is not rocket science. Okay, I know that Tallahassee very often is about special interests and paying lobbyists, but I didn't do what I did for DNA, and neither did Villalobos, because, you know, we had lobbyists you know, all over us. We did it because there are people in the legislature who want to do things because it's the right thing to do. So there are people who would sponsor legislation to make those changes.
3: The jury trial is the thing that happens in a criminal case. And after that, Attacking the results of the jury trial, you've got to climb that mountain, and it's it's a tough climb.
1: That's O.H. Eaton, Jr., a retired circuit judge and nationally recognized expert on the death penalty. He was not involved in the Ziegler case, but he spent 25 years on the bench and taught other judges how to try death penalty cases. He said he understands how an innocent man can be put to death in Florida he suspects it's happened more than we know. He helped me understand how a decision by a trial judge might not get reversed by a higher court. And I'd like to tell the story
3: that I have a friend that's on the District Court of Appeal that used to be a trial judge here in Brevard County. And uh, when he got appointed to the District Court of Appeal, I ran into him at a bar meeting and I said, let me tell you something. I'm glad that you got on the Court of Appeal. I'm sure you're going to Uh, do very well there, I said, but remember something, my final judgments are not recommendations. You don't have the authority to treat it as a recommendation. Appellate judges don't have the authority to substitute their version or their feelings about how the case should be decided for the way the case was decided. All they are allowed to do is to look in the record and see if there is substantial competent evidence to justify the decision.
1: So that means that even if defense attorneys develop examples of mistakes or misconduct, that may have no impact at the appeals level. For instance, when Ziegler's lawyers filed motions accusing prosecutors of failing to turn over the interview with John Jellison, the Minnesota tourist, they had to prove not only that prosecutors withheld it, but that it would have changed the result of the trial. The courts ruled that it wouldn't. The same arguments have been applied to the blood evidence. Eaton referred to a ruling by Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia that acknowledged that the judicial system doesn't always get it right, but court resources are limited and the goal is finality. If, if I fiddle around hearing a case over and over and over
3: by Joe, then that means I can't handle Sam's case. And Sam's case needs to be handled. Every court has to say that there's a time where, when it's over. We've done all we can do for you. I'm here. Now, now, if I were the governor, I would have reduced his sentence to life years ago and been done with it. If I'd been the trial judge, I would have sentenced him to life because that's what the jury suggested or recommended. And that way, Ziegler would have been buried in the back of the Department of Corrections and we'd have never heard from him again. You know. But instead, the death sentence got imposed. And so now we've gone through all of this for all these years, and God knows how much money it's cost. You, you cannot win. If, if you grant the motion, then the litigation continues. If you deny the motion, the litigation continues. I mean, it, it's, it's, not, uh, it's, not, it's not easy.
1: Today, nearly every state has a DNA testing law, but inmates across the country struggle for access to the technology. In December, California Governor Jerry Brown ordered DNA tests to be conducted in the 35-year-old case of a man accused in a quadruple murder after prodding from New York Times columnist Nicholas Kristof, U.S. Senator Kamala Harris, and Kim Kardashian. It's not just a problem for death row inmates. I found a dozen men facing life who can't get DNA testing either. African Americans are disproportionately affected by wrongful convictions. Of the 480 people exonerated with the help of DNA, including 18 in Florida, almost 60% are African American, according to the National Registry of Exonerations. Combined, they served 7,418 years in prison. Here's Seth Miller, director of the Innocence Project of Florida.
6: We should treat these DNA testing motions, which are not in great number or volume, or not a burden on the court, Um, With extra special care when they come through the door of the courthouse Um, because It it can change our thinking about a case someone who we once thought was a monster is not a monster at all because they're innocent and And we should I I think provide a a little bit more lenity for how we deal with those cases particularly in instances where uh, the defendant um, wants to use a private laboratory and is willing to pay for the testing and there is really no burden Uh, on the court.
1: Miller said Florida judges base their decisions on whether to allow DNA testing on the old evidence, but DNA results can transform the meaning of the old evidence. Several death penalty experts and Florida attorneys working on appeals for death row inmates said judges are tired of frivolous appeals. They have large dockets and are unwilling to allow fishing expeditions. Here's Michelle Feldman, legislative strategist for the Innocence Project in New York City.
0: It's a battle between finality and the truth. And, you know, finality, it does have importance. I understand that you don't want procedures to go on forever, but truth is
1: more important. In 2006, the American Bar Association, concerned about fairness and accuracy in Florida's death penalty, formed a group made up of former judges— state attorneys, public defenders, and university professors to review the law. The Florida Death Penalty Assessment Team found geographic and racial disparities in sentencing, too many inmates on death row with severe mental disabilities, and a DNA statute that gave judges a lot of leeway in turning down requests. The group recommended that the state create a commission on wrongful convictions and that a panel of judges review claims of innocence. Florida did neither.
8: The death penalty is flawed, it's inefficient, it's biased, it's costly, it's not a, det- it's not a deterrent, there's no closure for the families because it drags out forever. Uh, We spend millions of dollars more on each individual death case than you would on a person serving life in prison. And most people on death row die of a natural death.
1: That's former Florida Supreme Court Justice James E.C. Perry. He served on the high court for eight years before retiring in 2017 at the mandatory age of 70. Perry, who was assigned three staff attorneys, said he devoted 60 percent of his time to people facing execution I asked him if he thought inmates should be allowed to obtain advanced DNA testing Well my personal
8: opinion uh, you know if if there's science today that didn't have then and the material is still there if it hasn't decomposed I mean there's all I'm sure there all kinds of arguments people are making I mean I'm not that for me with the Ziegler case but if it's if it's evidence is there it can be tested I think it if exonerates him, I think it should be this.
1: Tommy Ziegler's case raises all sorts of lingering questions. How could dozens of police officers, prosecutors and judges all see a path to his guilt if he was an innocent man? How could so many others look at the same evidence and be convinced that he was wrongly convicted? Were people on either side only seeing what they wanted to see? Circuit Judge Maurice Paul, who sent Ziegler to death row and later became a U.S. District Court judge, spoke little about his role in the case before his death in 2016 at age 84. He was once asked at a hearing why he decided to give Ziegler death after the jury recommended mercy. I did it to fulfill a promise that I had made to uphold the law, he said. And the law and the evidence requires that sentence in this case. Terry Hadley, who represented Ziegler at the original trial, said the death sentence traumatized him. He never took another criminal case.
8: When you're
3: defending someone who's innocent, and you believe with all your heart is innocent, everything's at stake. And do it anything but perfect, and nobody's perfect, uh, and you lose. You look back, you know, with angst and horror and regret, which all of us who defended Tommy do. So that's why we keep digging.
1: Ken and Linda Roach, the couple who saw four cars in front of the Ziegler Furniture Store on Christmas Eve 1975 and heard a series of shots, were not allowed to testify at the 2016 hearing about what they saw and heard. The Roaches are haunted by the case.
7: I woke up at 4.30 this morning, by the way, and what was on my mind? I did yesterday morning too. And it's been, I, I, I wake up from time to time, uh, four or five o'clock in the morning and Tommy Ziegler's on my mind. And normally I get busy, then you know, I don't think about it as much. But if I'm just sitting around, it's continuously on my mind all the time. That they sentence this man to, to, to death sentence on what they call state theory. In my opinion, state theory is nothing more than a person's idea of what happened. How they could convict a man or a person on a theory, somebody's idea, theory, theory, is, is beyond me. What we saw and heard is facts, not theory.
1: The blood spatter expert, whose testimony was so pivotal in Ziegler's case, went on to testify for the defense at the O.J. Simpson trial. Herbert McDonnell was later charged with second-degree sexual abuse and forcible touching of two girls at his home in Corning, New York. He pleaded guilty in 2013 to second-degree harassment, a misdemeanor, and was given probation. His work has also been discredited. Bloodstain pattern analysis is speculation, not science, according to a 2009 report by the National Academy of Science. A ProPublica investigation earlier this year highlighted McDonald's role in spreading subjective analysis across the country. He influenced thousands of cases. McDonald, now 90, could not be reached for this story. Mays' wife, Maddie, always maintained that Mays went to the furniture store that Christmas Eve to pick up a TV, not to rob Ziegler. She could not be reached for this story. But years after the murders, one of Mays' sons, Ernie, told a police officer that he saw his father put a pistol in his pocket before leaving that Christmas Eve, and that his father kept saying there would be plenty of money for Christmas. Edward T. Rowe, an officer with the Oakland Police Department, provided defense attorneys with an affidavit in 1982. Rose said he managed a country store where Mays' son, Ernie, worked when he was 15 years old. They had several conversations about what happened inside the store, and Rose said Mays told him his father was supposed to have killed Mr. Tommy, and Mr. Tommy wasn't supposed to kill his father. Jeff Ashton, the prosecutor who, like Egan, believes so strongly in Ziegler's guilt— is now a circuit judge. He spoke with us before he was elected.
6: There isn't a DNA result in this case that would be definitive one way or the other, because you have a certain limited number of people that are in that place, and exactly whose DNA is on what isn't. it doesn't illuminate that much.
1: Ziegler's appeals have all but run out. His lawyers have reached out to Orange Osceola State Attorney Aramis Ayala, hoping that she'll allow DNA testing. Ayala defeated Ashton two years ago. She would not agree to an interview with the Times. Ziegler's attorneys first met with her and asked that she join in the request for DNA testing in August 2017. I recently obtained a copy of their written request, filed months later in April 2018. It's 49 pages long and outlines how the DNA testing would exonerate Ziegler. It notes that Ayala said during their meeting that she would only join in the DNA request if she could be persuaded that Mr. Ziegler would walk free. I'm reading from the lawyer's letter now. Ziegler believes so strongly in his innocence that he is prepared literally to live or die by the results of the testing he seeks. If the state agrees to the testing we seek, and to vacate his conviction if the DNA results prove his innocence, Ziegler will personally write to the governor to request an immediate execution if DNA testing shows him to be guilty. Here's Michael. Lee.:
2: Just to prevent us from even doing the testing, from even looking at the physical evidence to see what it shows, what it proves... To me, and I've said this in open court, is, is like discovering that you have a video of the crime, and yet you won't even play it.
1: Irma Brickell, the juror who felt intimidated and voted to convict after being given a Valium, died in 2016. The Florida Supreme Court ruled in 1993 that the Valium didn't matter since her doctor prescribed it. Rather than judicial misconduct, the court wrote, This allegation simply reflects judicial concern for the well-being of one of the jurors who had fainted earlier in the trial. Holly Kaysen, now Cleveland, 68, a retired bank executive who also served on the jury and was convinced of Ziegler's guilt, still lives in Jacksonville. She listened recently as I explained how Ziegler had been unable to get full DNA testing. She thinks the evidence should be tested. That's only fair, she said. She still believes he's guilty, but she wonders. Before you came in this room, I still had no doubt. And now, I don't know. You've raised some doubt. In Winter Garden, anger and sadness punctuate any conversation about that Christmas Eve. The building where the Zieglers once sold couches, curtains, and hanging lamps is now the Edgewood Children's Ranch thrift store. An employee recently looked up and said to a visitor, You hear about 1975? He pointed to a bullet hole still in the glass at the front of the store. An older woman standing close by couldn't resist speaking up. I wish they'd fry him right now, she said of Ziegler. I'd be the first to help. Ziegler accepts that he'll likely die on death row, one way or another. He has gotten used to this life, knows how to fit in, is respected thanks to his seniority and quiet demeanor. If he is guilty, he is an incredible actor. Ashton, the former prosecutor and now a circuit judge, has said as much. Ziegler, Ashton said, has the ability to look you in the eye and appear like he is telling the truth. Ziegler says he is telling the truth. He wasn't a gay man living a double life, and he didn't need the insurance money, he said. He loved his wife.
4: I didn't commit these murders. And there's no way DNA, there's no way any scientific evidence will say I did. This case has never been looked at from the cumulative effect of all the evidence, all of it together in totality. It's never been looked at like that. It's been piecemeal the whole time. And it's not our fault it was piecemeal. It's the way it came to us. That's what the problem is. Now, since 2004, we have pleaded again for more DNA testing. We want to DNA test everything in that crime scene with the new technology. Everything in that crime scene. We'll we'll play your game. And what does the state say? No. You're in procedural default. You had your chance and you didn't do it. Is that justice? Are they looking for justice? Are they looking for truth or veracity or integrity? No.
1: Next week, join us on Facebook Live as I discuss my reporting on this story and update Ziegler's case. We'll start out our conversation at noon Eastern Standard Time on Monday, February 18th If you'd like a notification, please go to the Tampa Bay Times on Facebook and like us, and we'll remind you when the Facebook Live starts. If you have questions you'd like me to answer, please email me at L-L-A-P-E-T-E-R at tampabay.com. That's L-L-A-P-E-T-E-R at tampabay.com. You can also ask them live on the stream, and you can listen to that broadcast on the podcast the next day. Catch up with earlier episodes of Blood and Truth on major hosting platforms. And if you like the series, please rate and review us on iTunes. This podcast was written by Leonora Lapeter Le Anton and edited by Maria Carrillo. Audio was recorded by Cherie Diaz. The podcast was produced by James Borchuk. Research and assistance was provided by Connie Humberg, Karen Baird, Gabrielle Kalisi. And McKenna Oxenden. Music by Emmett Cook and Firefly Music. To read the full series online, go to tampabay.com blood and truth. Thanks for listening.